Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. High atop the Highway 7 Ridge, live from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Thursday, January the 12th, and this is episode 818 of the Survival Podcast. Sometimes, it, 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 actually today's 819 of the Survival Podcast, and sometimes it really, it even hits me when I say a number like that, 819, that's a lot of episodes. We figured out last night that this June will be the fourth year anniversary of the Survival Podcast, and I think that's pretty cool. And I'm glad you guys have been here with me, some of you, since the very beginning. Anyway, today is going to be an absolutely new subject, even after 819 episodes. I gave a little teaser on it yesterday during the interview with Greg Yows, just because it was so much on my mind because I was planning it. In fact, I was going to blend it into the show that I did on Tuesday about the debt crisis. And I'm glad I didn't now, because now I can dedicate a whole show to it. I'd actually had already stripped the audio uh, out for this. And today's show, if you didn't see it in the title, is Billy Joel's Allentown, History Lesson, Prophecy, or Both. And we're going to examine this old 1982 pop hit. And I know it doesn't sound like the Survival Podcast, but trust me today, you're going to hear some things that are going to be awful close to home for a song that was written so long ago. And I'm going to tell you, as a kid that grew up, exactly where this song's about, how spot on it was then, and I'm going to tell you what it means for us as a whole. This is going to be an interesting show, and I think it'll be an entertaining show, maybe a little bit frightening in some instances, but also with some hope that, yeah, we can get by and we can figure out what to do to go to another level next. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, for about an hour a day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. Have you ever wondered why they're called Sawtooth Tactical? That's because uh, that operation is run up in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's about as American and rugged as it gets. And you're going to get great service because it's a veteran-owned and veteran-operated company that gives you all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle, from Magpul magazines to SOE tactical gear and everything else you can think of. Check out their titanium tactical spork. It sounds a little bit funny, but it's actually a really cool tool especially for you guys to spend a lot of time out there on the trail and you need to eat food on the trail uh, from, from things like that. Just It's like one tool that does it all and more. It'll last a lifetime. Check it out, sawtoothtactical.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you ask for from a company than say, this is our name, this is what we do, and uh, we're going to do it every time, which means you go to ready-made resources, you look it up on their website, and all the resources you need for your prepping are sitting there waiting for you. You point-click and buy, you get great pricing, you get great service, and they're delivered right to your door. And I mean everything, long-term storage food, tactical stuff, gardening stuff, you name it, 12-volt stuff for your solar and wind, solar panels, wind generation equipment, if you can think of it, Ready-Made Resources has it. Go ahead on over there, check them out today, get on their mail list, see if you can give them some business. Long-term sponsor, been with us. You know, I just mentioned that we've been on the air almost four years. They've been with us about three. 
That says something about their support of the show. Next up, remember, you can connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The best way to do that is uh, just go to the survivablepodcast.com. You'll find links to all of those right there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll be supporting the show about 20, at about 20 cents an episode. If you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, please send me an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Give me a little bit of a detail about your service. Put something like military discount or service discount subject line to help me uh, find it quicker and handle it quicker for you. And I'll send you a discount code that gives you a special discount in recognition for your service to our country. Uh, with that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to go ahead and get into today's show. Now, I kind of fancy myself as a teacher. I really do. I hope I'm teaching you something, at least one or two things every day. And I learned a long time ago from a teacher of mine, a mentor of mine, that a master teacher is someone that doesn't just teach and preach, but someone that helps a student with their own learning. And that if you're teaching right, as you're teaching what you're teaching, they're already connecting dots and getting ahead of you. Not only are they connecting dots and getting ahead of you, they're extrapolating your teaching as a learning into their own life in a way you never could for them. And when you really do it right, you create a contrast and you create a paradigm shift so that something they've always looked at one way that they've had an objectivity and a personal bias for will appear different forever. Or something maybe that they've always heard, they've always heard it and thought one thing and when they hear it the next time, they'll think something else. So before I go any deeper, I'm going to risk, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, trademark or copy infringement or whatever twice today, because I'm going to play a live version of Billy Joel's Allentown that I got off of YouTube twice for you today. I'm going to play it for you right now before I do this episode, and then when we exit today, instead of playing The Revolution Is You by Greg Yose, I will play Billy Joel's Allentown as we exit the show. And I want to see if maybe it sounds a little different the second time around, so Without further ado, the great Billy Joel and his song, Allentown. If you've never cared for the song, uh, give it a listen anyway. If you've never heard it before, because maybe you're a younger member of the audience, give it a listen. I think you'll already start to hear some things that make you think of today, even though this, again, came out in 1982. Out in Bethlehem, there 
Well, there you go. And the song was a pretty big hit for Billy Joel, and it was really popular, if you might imagine, in eastern Pennsylvania where I went to high school. I went to high school there in the mid-80s, uh, you know, 85, 86, 87, that type of thing. And um, it was, you know, it only came out a few years before that, and uh, we were living in Florida at the time, but we were from the region, and one knew we were going to move back there eventually, so... As a young kid, you know, I listened to that song and with a, not a complete understanding of it, especially as when I was really young. It was just a song like any other song on the radio. And along the way, I began to develop an understanding of what the words are really about. But then you go and you live life and went off in the military and I went off and built a career and everything. And, you know, things happen that make you go back to things you remember. Once in a while, you hear a song and you listen to words and... They mean something to you more than they've ever meant to you before. And you can see them for a history lesson, and you can see them for a future-looking statement. And it's weird that an artist can be this dead on. So let's look a little bit at some of the lyrics that you just heard. And I'm going to explain them to you. And some of them are real easy to understand, and some of them not so much. And I'm going to tell you how they apply today. Um, well, we're living here in Allentown, and they're closing all the factories down. Out, of Beth out in Bethlehem, they're killing time, filling out forms, standing in line. We don't do a lot of form filling out and standing in line today, but what they were talking about is as the steel and coal and associated industries began to fall off in this, this part of Pennsylvania, there was massive unemployment. Now, in 82, there was pretty bad unemployment across the whole country, Kind of like right now. But the, the industrial uh, coal, iron, steel fueled region that ran from you know, New Jersey all the way out into the Midwest, out into Illinois and, uh, and through uh, Ohio and things like that, man, just took it on the chin. 
So everybody was out looking for a job. And everybody was pretty distraught and disgusted. So the, the song actually starts out in the 1982 world. It starts out in the present. And it immediately takes a shift back, a full generation back, all the way back from 1982 to, let's say, 1942 in the second verse. The, our fathers fought the Second World War, spent their weekends on the Jersey Shore, met our mothers in the USO, asked them to dance, danced with them slow. So I think there's so much more in that little verse that, that means something to us today that we've forgotten. We don't understand how it applies to us. Let me explain to you what it meant if you were spending your weekends at the Jersey Shore when you were living in eastern Pennsylvania. It meant you were a blue-collar person living a damn good life. I see. I, I think people just think, well, it, it rhymed and it sounded cool, and that's what went on up there. It, it, it is, but it had this deeper meaning. You know, the, Billy was from the area; he understood what he was talking about here. If you went down and hung out and had, you know, you know, a little vacation place or, or whatever, maybe split it with a couple friends, and you took turns using it or whatever down on the Jersey Shore, and you lived in Allentown, Bethlehem, Easton, if you lived in that ABE area or anywhere around there then that meant you were doing good, and you probably had a job working for one of the steel mills. That was the job to have, man. You didn't have to have a college degree. Uh, some of the people there did, but a lot of guys just made it made it work for themselves. And uh, you got paid good. You got paid really good. You had benefits. You had, you had people looking out after you. Your job was secure. Your job was stable. You're, you could get your buddy a job. The next time a job opened, if you knew somebody, they could get you in. I mean, it was the American dream all from the World War II forward till the collapse began there. And then it goes on, and we're living here in Allentown, but the restlessness was handed down, and it's getting very hard to stay. So their fathers, who were these people that went out and fought a war for their country, and then came home and settled down, and kind of got their their just this part of them out, right? They went out and they did something so hard and so horrific and so tough. And I'm going to tell you, when you lived in that area and you talked to old men, right? 1982, when a guy was an old man, you know, he was in his 60s and, and, and older. He, nine times out of ten, you were talking to a World War II vet. It was like everybody went, especially from that area. If you weren't drafted, you, 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 you signed up. You know, my grandfather's both... Uh, d decided to go. They, neither one of them were drafted. Uh, they both joined. One joined the Navy, one joined the Army. It was just what you did. But they, you know, they danced with their moms, they hung out on the Jersey Shore, they had this, this active, vibrant life, and then they settled in to this lifestyle and were happy with a good job and a good pay and everything else. But kids started wanting to leave. They wanted to go find something more But let me tell you something about growing up in that area. I was told things like, now my Uncle Mike didn't work in Allentown, he worked down in Philly. But he was a machinist. Now he had even gone to college. But he had a job where he didn't really need a degree. And he liked his job. He worked for Boeing. And he was a Boeing machinist, and he worked on stuff to build airplanes. And I was always told, you don't even need to go to college if you don't want to. We want you to, but if you don't want to go, just get really good grades and math and science, and Uncle Michael get you in with him at Boeing. 
This was the mentality of the entire area. If you had an uncle or a father or a brother that had gotten into one of these good-paying industrial jobs, even in the coal region where I lived, it was kind of in this already in this decay state. There were still places like where people really wanted to work. Uh, where I lived, there was a little town called Cresona. And Cresona had a big plant called Cresona Aluminum. And they paid well for the area. And you got overtime. You know, you worked swing shift, but hey, it was worth doing. And this was the mentality. If you knew somebody and they could get you in, you're, you don't leave, Johnny. Stay here where you'll be looked after. So the restlessness to, to leave, to go elsewhere, was constantly, even though to, the ki- what it was is the kids, we weren't stupid. We could look around and we could see it falling in. But our fathers, our fathers who fought the Second World War, right, and 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 our, our our fathers who were in the Korean War and the beginning of Vietnam, and we're going to get to that in a minute in a way that many people that have heard this song never understand. But they had this; they had vested their entire lives in this. See, and and the the old men, the World War II generation. These guys had, most of them were not like today. They weren't 18-year-old kids when they went off to war. They were in their 20s. And when you were 21, 22 years old in 1938, and you lived in a place like this, and you worked a blue-collar job, the first thing you did was go get a house so you could start building a family. And they left. And these guys had mortgages on their house for $1,300, dollars $1,500 for a three-bedroom house with a piece of land, a little homestead, just like the one I grew up in. And when they went off to World War II, if they didn't get killed, by the time they came home, their house was paid for. The inflation that happened during that period, they had military pay, they only needed so much of their money. These were men that cared about their family, they were doing this for a purpose, not for a job. They sent that money home. The woman that stayed home put the money on the house because they knew the value of the house. They paid the house off. The women went to work for the first time in America. It turned into two-household income before everybody was doing it. There was prosperity there, and they had no debt. And these older people worked their ass off for the next 50 years. And they believed they were doing the right thing for their kids and their grandchildren. So when those kids and grandchildren wanted to leave what they had put so much into... They said, no, don't leave. You'll have Uncle Mike or your brother or your cousin to look after you. You can see this in a lot of movies. You want to see this? Go watch the movie Rudy. It's not based on total reality. But look at the first part. The first part of the movie where he's working in the mill with his brother. and he's being, That was every kid in the area, especially the people my father's age. Because this song's about my father's generation, not mine. My generation was the next one that was being handed down to. So that's what was going on there. And at that point, we're back to the future, uh, or back to the present, I guess you would say, 1982. Well, we're waiting here in Allentown for the Pennsylvania we never found. For the promises our teachers gave... If we worked hard, if we behaved. And see, this is what we were told. Even my generation was told this. Work hard, go to school, get good grades. There's a wonderful thing here for you. There's a future for you. We were promised there was this painted picture of what the place would be. And again, this is more my father's generation than mine. I'm just telling you the same, even though it was already the writing was on the wall, there was a song about it. 
The message was still being sent from that generation. The world where my grandparents and my, my, you know, my great uncles and my great aunts and a huge extended family and the, in the community or the Ukraine community, the Slovak community, the Irish communities, all these older people were still telling the kids, work hard, behave, get good grades. Why wouldn't you tell a kid that? It even sounds like a good thing to say today, right? But then we go to the next line. And this is so very important. And you start to really see 2012. So the graduations hang on the wall, but they never really helped us at all. No, they never taught us what was real, iron and coke, chromium steel. One thing I got to tell you, first of all, a lot of people don't know what coke is. Coke is a fuel made from bituminous coal. See, and iron and steel were what the region made. And it was a great region to make it because it was rich with coal. So you could take the coal right from the ground, right to the mill, process it into coke. And there were different regions and different, you would call them uh, countries within Pennsylvania. Iron country, steel country, zinc country, and then the two big ones, anthracite country and bituminous country. Anthracite was the hard coal. Burns really, really hot. A lot of it was exported. A lot of it was burnt in coal burners and furnaces right by the people that did the mining to heat their homes with radiator systems. But that soft coal, that bituminous coal, could be made into coke. It burned very, very hot, very, very long, and as coal goes, it burns quite clean. Now, it makes a lot of mess when you make it, but once it's made, it's great for refining steel. So that's what that was about. So they went to school, and they worked hard. And this is not the college layer at this point. The college layer was the restless generation that went out and studied technology and management and things like that, and they left. Today, this song applies to the college generation. Now think about this. We've basically made a college degree today equivalent to the value of a high school diploma in 1982. That's why it works so well. But these kids, they went to school, they got good grades, and then they went and got a job in the mill, and all the stuff they were told they had to learn in school didn't help them at all. It was not about the high school diploma. It wasn't the math. That they, all the stuff that they were told they needed to know was worthless to them when they got to the mill and started busting their ass. And when the mill started to collapse, that diploma did nothing for them. They couldn't fall back on it. They had no other skill set. That was all that they had. And we'll keep going. And we're waiting here in Allentown, but they've taken all the coal from the ground. And the union people crawled away. So the unions told these guys, hey, don't worry, we got your back. It's okay. We'll negotiate you better benefits. We'll get you a raise. We'll get you more time off. Don't worry, it's fine. And eventually it wasn't fine anymore. Companies figured out, you know, unless I'm building a skyscraper, I don't really need grade A premium steel and the Japs and the Chinese make it cheap. Let's start importing this stuff. Come on, we're building products for planned obsolescence anyway. But see, here's a bigger lesson, and I kind of foreshadowed this yesterday. The reason that the region fell apart is everything was built with a mining philosophy versus a farming philosophy. When you're building businesses and when you're building economies, there's two ways to do it. There's farming and there's mining. Mining is like drilling for oil or mining for coal. You have a finite resource, and I don't care how much of it's there, eventually it has to run out, and you do damage to the surrounding area through its extraction. 
a farming economy, a farming business, and this is, this is a metaphor, it doesn't have to be direct, Everything can be continuously regenerated. It's sustainable. It doesn't go away. So mining for energy is a fossil fuel. Farming energy is a wind farm or a solar farm. And both of those technologies have limitations, but you get the point. They are sustainable. And if we actually put effort into them, we could make them regenerative. Well, mining is not just about iron and coke and chromium steel and oil and gas and sun and wind. Mining and farming are about the way you run a business or an economy. And leading up to the economic collapse of 2008, the reason I could tell you with absolute certainty, in June of 2008, when I first started doing this show, protect your money, the crash is coming, is because I know what mining does. Because as a young kid that hunted deer and squirrels in the mountains of Pennsylvania, I walked across the stripping holes that the strip miners left behind. And I've looked at places where they hadn't mined since the 1930s and still nothing was growing. There was nothing but black coal slush and nothing grew in it. And it will take longer than I will walk the planet for topsoil to build up on top of that and anything to ever grow there again. And I watched the water leach into the creeks around me and turn the water that my grandfather told me a long time ago that the brook trout would swim up there. They looked like salmon when they were going to spawn. And he could just literally go out there and, and pull them out of the water. And that water today, if you put a carp in it, it would die. I saw that. And when I see the same thing, I know what the results are. We were strip mining the economy. That's what it means when you're giving people loans to create money who you know have no hope of repaying it. That's when you're doing high-velocity trading where people are trading a stock and they're holding it for 30 seconds. You're going to hear about that next week from Mike Gazier. They hold it for 30 seconds and they make a million dollars. What value did they bring to anybody? Strip mine, strip mine, strip mine. They've taken all the coal from the ground and the union people crawled away. They've strip mined everything. And the people that promised you your prosperity, they got wealthy and they left. Haunting, isn't it? That this song was written in 1982. If only we had listened. Who knew that a pop artist was this wise? Now this is the part that especially, if you weren't around in the 80s and you never saw the video, I think a lot of people have heard this. I think there's a lot of people that have heard this song so many times they could sit and listen to it on the radio and sing it, and they have no idea what this verse means or what it's even about. Every child had a pretty good shot to get at least as far as their old man got. But something happened on the way to that place. They threw an American flag in our face. Do you know what that is? That's your Vietnam War. That's your Vietnam War. That's the kid that worked hard, behaved, got good grades, went and got Uncle Mike to get him in at the mill. 18, 19, 20 years old, busting his ass, building his life, believed he would be, he would spend his weekends on the Jersey Shore like his old man, believed he would have the prosperity of his old man, and got a letter and said, you're drafted. And the people that were like my father's age and older, it wasn't like the old men. It wasn't the same number, right? The old men, the guys in their 60s, they all went to World War II. I mean, it was like very, very rare that you would find a guy that didn't go. And if you did, he didn't even want to tell you he didn't go. He was like embarrassed that he didn't go. I can't think of one I know that didn't go. I know all my uncles, my great uncles, all of them went. 
All my, my grandfather's brothers, my, you know, my grandmother's brothers, every, every one. If I went into, I used to, when I was a little kid, my grandfather used to take me to a bar. Yes, a bar as a kid. And I turned out okay, shockingly enough. Pennsylvania in a cold region, the bars are totally different places. They're family gathering spots. And all the old men would sit around and they put me up on a bar stool next to them and they'd give me pistachio nuts from the machine. They were like a quarter and every guy in there would go through his pockets and give me some money to go get some pistachios. And the barkeep, Sam, he'd come up and say, what are you drinking? You know, and it's Coke, right? You can hear Coca-Cola, you have a beer. You know, and they, they never charged a kid for a soda in that bar, ever. And you'd sit there and you'd listen to these old men talk. And they had, you know, tattoos of the ships that they were on. And, and that was what our view of serving a country was all about. And we'd already been through Vietnam. You'd think we would have learned, but no, they still had it. So imagine what it was like. 1968, 1969, 1970, when these kids were getting these notices to go off to war. What do you think the old vets were telling them? Ah, you go serve your country. You go protect us from the communists. And look what happened when we came home. When we came home, we had the GI Bill and the college fund, and we built the highways, and this entire thing. Because remember, the collapse hadn't come yet. There was people still had jobs. Everything was working. There was still the tail end of the prosperity of that generation. Go serve, and when you come home, your country will welcome you back. There'll be parades for you, and there'll be a job for you. And no one, no one ever can't find a job for a vet. That was the mentality. They got the American flag thrown right in their face because they went over and fought a war with no clear purpose, with no clear objective, and no clear way to victory. They came home, and their country didn't want them, and there were no jobs. And this had a much broader impact on the nation than just those who went. The man who had the guy working next to him on the line leave that he was friends with. He went to school. See, there's a small town mentality here. They think kids that grow up in bigger cities today will never understand. You went, you graduated. You knew every kid in your graduating class. And if you went and worked in the same place he did, you were close to, that's why you were in the same place. That's why you, so he went and you didn't. And then either he didn't come home, and you didn't even see the promise realized, or he came home and he was never quite right again, or he came home and he didn't get a job, or he came home in a wheelchair, or he came home with injuries, and you were left with nothing. What does that sound like? How many of our guys are coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq today? Now, they weren't drafted, but they're coming home. And when you come home as a soldier, let me tell you what you're thinking. I'll tell you what you're thinking, because I came home as a soldier in 1993. Everybody's going to want to talk to me. Everybody's going to want to hire me, man. I went out and served my country. I'm going to be able to get a job. It was tough for me to find my first job. I took whatever I could get. It's a lot tougher now. These guys are coming home disabled. They're come, a lot of them are coming home. And you look at them and they don't look like there's anything wrong with them. And they seem like they're okay. And they even think they're okay. And they don't even figure out. They don't even figure out for a month or two after they get home that there's even anything wrong with them. Some of them won't figure out how badly damaged they are inside. How broken they are inside for a year or more. But unlike our fathers who fought the Second World War and spent their weekends on the Jersey Shore, they're not coming home to get jobs working in the mill or building a highway. They're coming home to fill out forms and stand in lines. Again, this song was written in 1982. And let me finish it up for you because I want to I bring in another thing from 1967. 
that's going to tie this all home and really probably hit you hard when you figure out what's actually gone on in the world. Well, I'm living here in Allentown, and it's hard to keep a good man down, but I won't be getting up today, and it's getting very hard to stay, and we're living here in Allentown. So, in other words, I want to work. I want a job. I'm a good man. I believe in myself. I believe in my family. I believe it's worth. but I'm just laying in bed today because there's no point. It's hopeless. There's nothing I can do. And it's getting very hard to stay. And people left. It's what they did. They went elsewhere and they found other opportunities. And the region has never recovered. It's not a horrible place to live in a lot of areas. I'm still very proud to be from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, a graduate of Pottsville High School. I enjoyed living just north of Allentown in a little place called Northampton. And we lived there for three years while I was the regional manager for Fluke Networks. It was beautiful. It was like living in a Norman Rockwell town. There's still a lot of good there, but there's not a lot of opportunity for young people. Doesn't that sound like most of America today? <laughs> there's still a lot of good, but there's not a lot of opportunity. So it's getting very hard to stay, but now where do we go? Now what do we do? Well, how did this happen? What was this? Was this just people that hated this generation screwing them over? No. It was a shift. It was a shift that's very, very hard to understand unless you are willing to pull yourself back much, much further. I'm going to play something else for you. It's going to be much shorter. A little clip from a movie from 1967 called The Graduate. And the movie really wasn't about this scene. It was a much different movie than it was about you know an older woman seducing a younger man and that type of thing. But this scene told you everything you needed to know to avoid being crushed by what happened in the coal region and in the steel region. See if you can figure it out. I'll be back as soon as it's over to explain it. What are you going to do now? I was going to go upstairs for a minute. Oh, I meant with your future. Your life. Well, that's a little hard to say. Ben. Excuse me. Mr. McGuire. Ben. Mr. McGuire. Come with me for a minute. I want to talk to you. Excuse us, Joanne. Of course. Yes. Thank you. Oh, he is such a I look at him and I can't believe it. I, I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. That's a deal. Well, that's a very well-known scene. And the young man's just graduated. Everybody wants to know what he's going to do. And his, his father's friend, Mr. McGuire, pulls him aside, gives him some advice and says, you know, there's a great future in plastics. And those people that look back at that just think about it as, well, you know what? The plastic industry exploded. It became really, really, really a, a, a great industry. We have companies like DuPont today that have made billions, and everywhere you look, there's plastic. I'm sitting in my office right now, and I see many things, including uh, the, uh, the, the, the frame on the monitor in front of me, the keyboard, the mouse made from plastic. There's plastic components to the headset that's sitting behind me. My keychain's sitting there with a plastic resin uh, uh, thing that, that, that you know my pepper spray's contained in, and there's plastic wrapped around the remote control for my Volkswagen Jetta. There's plastic everywhere. 
What a genius piece of advice. Hey, young man, go into plastics. It's not developed yet, but it's going to be big. That's not what it's about. It's really not. You see, in the, in, in the, the, the timeline of, of this movie, I mean, the reality of the storyline itself comes from earlier than even 67. That's just when the movie was made. The original book, I think, was written in 63. And when you're writing a book like that, it takes a long time. So you're going back into the 50s, right? So by 67, it wasn't really that big a deal to go into plastics. But when the book was, because that whole transition had really transpired. And it began to be seen. But what it was really about was a shift from industry to technology. A shift from labor to service. The entire economy of the United States was shifting. If you were in the iron and coal and blue-collar manufacturing sector in the late 60s, you had a target on your head. It was only a matter of time until somebody picked you off. That was the message of One Word Plastics. Don't go where everybody thinks you should go. Because let me tell you, 1967 college graduate getting a good job at a managerial level for Bethlehem Steel sounded like a great idea. Was it? Not really. Not really. Now, did you have more options? Did your graduation hanging on the wall give you more fallback than the high school student that grew up blue collar was told go work where your Uncle Mike works? Yeah. Still wasn't a good piece of advice. If you wanted to excel and develop and develop a skill set, You went into the technology and services sector in the 60s and 70s. And when everything collapsed with the recession of the 70s, those were the people that kept their jobs. Those were the people that moved on. Those were the people that figured it wasn't easy to stay anymore, and they went somewhere else. And when they went somewhere else, they found something else. It was a shift. It was a shift, and people were caught blindsided by the shift, and the shift rolled over them like a Mack truck. And the region that was supposed to be so wonderful in Pennsylvania in the song is today known as the Rust Belt. So much for living like your father and spending your weekend on the Jersey Shore. So that's that's the reality. So what does that bring us to today? I'll tell you what it is. People look at today and go, well, it's still technology, Jack. Come on. It's not. It's a new technology. See, in in this timeline, in the 80s, Think about what a computer was. It was nothing compared to what it was today. And there was the precursor of the Internet, the military and uh, educational use, uh, institutions were using it, but it was nothing like what we have as the Internet today. And the primary means of communication around the world was voice-based communication. Even the first cell phones, they were just voice communication over a different infrastructure. If you wanted to talk to somebody, you did it with voice. Today you do it with data. Today, your cell phone is a data tool, not a voice tool. You might talk on it, but you're running on a data network for all intents and purposes. You're texting pictures. Information flies at the speed of light. Outsourcing is easier forever. Trading and manipulating markets is easier and more accessible by more people. Communication walls have been broken down. A maniac like me with a microphone and an internet connection can build a business. It's, but, but see, people, it's the internet. No, it's the shift. Voice to data. And this is the important thing to understand. The shift to plastics. First plastics were invented in the 1800s. Major plastic productivity went up in the 30s. The full ramifications of the shift were not realized until the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. 
It took that long for it to wash out the other end. We don't know how long it's going to take for it to wash out the other end of this internet data transfer. We're still in the middle of the shift. It hasn't even started yet. The internet's 15, 16 years old in its modern form. It's not even an adult yet. You have no idea what this shift is going to do long term. But you do know that it ain't going back to the way it was. It's getting very hard to stay because staying is stupid. You need to evolve. You need to move on. You need to figure out where the future lies. Because this shift is here and you ain't putting the genie back in the bottle. And some of you guys that think the collapse will look like Little little House on the Prairie when it's over, don't get it. Technology's not going away. We could have grid failures, infrastructure failures, and the second it fails... As soon as you pick the bodies up off the ground, they're going to start rebuilding it because we know how to do it now. It doesn't go backwards. It only goes forwards. And those that fight the progression of technology, whether it's from stone to bronze or from voice to data or anywhere in between, we can look at history and every one of them had their Allentown experience. Every single place, every single group of people that fought the shift were murdered by the shift. Maybe not directly dead murdered but their lifestyles their hopes their dreams crushed the occupy wall streeters a lot of them are college kids a lot of them are i'm surprised how many older people got involved with that changed my my view on it a lot but these college kids their graduations are hanging on the wall and they're not helping them very much at all all they have to show for their graduations that hang on the wall are 60 or 70 or eighty thousand dollars worth of student debt and no job And they're waiting there in Allentown. And a lot of them, lieutenants, captains in the military, took that degree and said, I'm going to do something first, I'm going to serve my country. And they went over and fought a war. And basically they're having the flag thrown in their face today. Doesn't mean that nobody recognizes them, but what were they promised? Hey, this military experience is going to help you get a job. And there's a lot of people that would like to hire them. It's not the people. See, this is what people don't understand. There doesn't always have to be a villain. There doesn't always have to be a bad guy for stuff to go wrong. It was nobody's fault that a hurricane destroyed a town. It was nobody's fault that an earthquake destroyed a town. Now, it's somebody's fault if it's not responded to as best that it can be. But I think a lot of people that do that kind of blaming don't understand the calamity around them when that's going on. I want to explain how long it can take for these shifts to fully play out. The biggest shift of the last 200 years, the biggest, most impactful shift that there was, was the move from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles. Nothing else has had as monumentous an effect on every human being, especially in America. In 1900... If you wanted some milk and you didn't own a cow and you didn't have a neighbor that owned a cow and you had to go into town to get milk, it was an event. You had to get prepared and get ready and go out and that's why there was preparedness mentality in the early part of our country. And you got on a horse or you got on a horse and buggy and you went to town and it might take you all day to make your trip. So you would buy enough to make it a month if you could and things that are perishable like milk, well, you'd have to figure out how to get by. You'd have to figure out how to put some up and can it or make butter or cheese out of it. It wasn't just because we like butter and cheese because they stored better than raw milk in its raw form. And that's why a lot of people owned a cow. Well, into this came who? The milkman. That's where the milkman came from. 
Man, that's one of the few things that you need fresh all the time if you're going to have it, not on a cow. So in the smaller communities that were kind of the, 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 the suburbs of the day, the milkman could go to the dairy, load everything up in his little milkman cart, and go deliver. People got used to this. People liked it. The car came along. And the milkman began a slow death, but the milkman was around in the 50s. But don't make any mistake about it, the car killed the milkman. Even though he was here for a lot longer, he was already dead. He just didn't know it yet. Because when we came up with, for the first time ever, people that didn't live in a downtown area that could walk to a store had something new in their life called weekly shopping. It did not exist if you were a suburbanite or a rural person in 1900. It didn't exist. You couldn't do it once a week. It was impossible. So fresh things like eggs were often delivered. When I was a kid in the 80s, we had what we called, the, the, we had a milkman, we had a farmer. The farmer brought us things like eggs and meat, right? He would come to the house, and he, it was always funny because he'd say to my grandmother, you want a ham this week? And if she did, she'd say, yeah, I want a ham. He goes, which half of the ham do you want, right? And what he meant is the bottom or the top. And you know what my grandmother would tell this guy? The better half. Whichever one's better out of that cut, whichever one is less fat or more meat or it looks like a better piece of meat, give me the better one. I don't care if it's top or bottom. <laughs> and they had that. And he, they, this guy had been coming there for 20 years. He knew what she was going to say. He still asked her. It was their thing. You know, and he brought us fresh eggs and meat, and we would get we would get like beef from the guy. You know, sirloin steak, uh, bacon. I mean, this guy had great bacon. But these two guys that came to the house, it was actually it was a butcher. And a farmer. And the farmer brought the milk and the eggs. I'm sorry. And the butcher, they called him, was the guy named Arcee. He brought all the meat products. And uh, I don't know when they stopped coming. They were still coming when I went away to the Army in, in what, 89. Uh, but I guarantee you they're not there now. I guarantee you they're not there now. In the 80s, I still remember people that had what you called stolen milk crates. Remember? Because the milk would come, you know, four, four glass jugs of milk in a crate. And what do we store in them? Record albums. Seen any record albums lately unless you're a collector? <laughs> That was the shift of the automobile. And there were still remnants of those run over by the shift. But boy, it wasn't a career path choice in 1950, was it? The writing was on the wall the day that Ford made mass-producing automobiles practical. There were, and, and the milkman and the, the, the butcher are just one example of hundreds of professions, small entrepreneurial professions that went away. Because now we could centralize distribution, and that shift began all the way back then. But it took almost 70, 80 years to fully kill off everything that was going to kill. And then we went to a technology shift. And that technology shift, that shift to plastics, to service and technology versus labor and industry, moved even faster. And it, it really was kind of coming to a head in the 60s. And in 20 years, it laid waste. Well, guess what? Even though I told you the Internet's about 15, 16 years old in its current form, the, the real Internet... The internet where everybody knows what everybody's doing all the time. The real internet where everybody's device is a data device. The real internet where there's a Facebook and a YouTube and a Twitter. The real internet where everybody can basically have what would be equivalent in 1982 as a seat on the U.S. Stock Exchange where you can trade in real time. That internet is about five years old. We're five years into the shift and look at 
what the shift has done. Does that mean the shift's bad? It just means no, that many people were caught unaware by the shift, and we don't know what it will look like in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. We have all these different problems. We have a debt crisis that I talked about earlier this week. None of that's going away, but this shift is still here. That's what the song Allentown was really all about. It was a shift, and it was an entire generation caught right in the middle of that shift. There were advice to stay. It's getting very hard to stay. Advice to stay by the prior generation that were so, they weren't bad people. They were so proud of what they did. They were, they were the greatest generation. They really, really were. They did things we cannot imagine today. They made sacrifices we can never really fully understand today. They had so much less in their good times than we have in our bad times. And they still did it. And they made it better. And they came home and they built the highways and they built the skyscrapers. They built the steel mills. And when they told Johnny and Tommy and, and Susie, hey, your future's here. You know, some small portion of you guys, 20% maybe are going to, smart kids are going to go to college. And that was good advice, sort of. But then the rest, they said, just trust your uncle. Don't take risks. See, that was the thing. They didn't want these kids to take risks. They didn't want them to become entrepreneurs and innovators. They wanted them to play it safe. They wanted them to spend their weekends on the Jersey Shore. They wanted them close. They wanted the family held together. It was very, very noble. And maybe it could have been done better. I don't know. But what I do know is the shift came. And I know that that generation got an American flag shoved in their face. And I know it wasn't just those who went, it was those that lost people who went. And it was the promise that when it was over, there would be a peace dividend. That was a very, very common word. The peace dividend. And they pissed away the peace dividend before the treaty was signed. It was already gone. Everything that they were promised was gone. Before they even got to where it was supposed to be there. Look at America today. Look at where we're headed. There's another shift. And there's, it's, it's never a shift. It's always multiple shifts. I could, I could go between 1960 and, and 1990, and I could find you a hundred major shifts in industry and service and, and everything else if I want to dig into it. And from 1990 to 2012, I could find you a hundred more major, major shifts. But there's the big shifts. The, from the horse to the carriage. The from the horseless carriage to the automobile is what I'm saying. Right, that was a huge shift. From sticks and stones to steel and iron and coal. From steel and iron and coal to technologies and services based on voice communication. And that to database communications. And everywhere and every time that there's a major shift, there's a group of people that put all of their effort, all of their learning, all of their knowledge, all of their skills into the end of the last boom and are now entering the new world completely unprepared for it. That's what the song's really all about. So now I want to end today, and I want to play the song for you again, and I want you to listen to the words, and I want you to see if the song takes a new meaning to you. And I hope I brought a little bit of a personal insight from growing up in the region where it happened to you today. And I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to realize something. This is how bad it was. And things did get better. 
Things can get better again, but we need to be prepared to move along with these shifts as they happen. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough before you get to know. Get all the cards.